Hey, wellness friends, welcome to the Wellness Table Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Cheryl Bothwell, and I hope you're all doing great today. This podcast is all about talking health and nutrition. What are the latest trends? What are the fads? What's the best diet? What's the cutting edge science? And even what do I eat for dinner? So I'm all about helping people fight disease, heal the gut, improve their energy, all decreasing inflammation, all the things that we get and all the benefits from food as medicine, but at the same time, enjoy eating, eating happy and eating healthy. So I love to talk about food as medicine and as a previous cookbook author um, for many, many years, I love to make the food craveable, delicious, and at the same time, keep us full and want to come back for more and actually remember that that was one of my favorite breakfasts, even though it did make me healthy or made me feel good. So those are my key points and what my whole message is all about. But in today's episode, I want to take a deep dive into the world of insulin resistance with or without diabetes. We often think if I have diabetes, if I have type 1 diabetes, I may not have enough insulin. If I have type 2 diabetes, um, I may typically we'll see an insulin resistance and we run abnormal or difficult to manage our blood sugar levels. We also deal with prediabetes where we begin to see our blood sugar beginning to rise. These are all metabolic health concerns that we have and they're very important. There's also some interesting updates that I want to share with you today on how metformin is a medication that's being prescribed for people that do have type 2 diabetes and helps them manage their blood glucose levels. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that. And also an interesting part of this is in insulin resistance, how come we don't see that as part of a typical medical assessment, um, running our fasting insulin levels? When we ran the Take 10 program, we always made that part of our initial assessment was what was your fasting insulin levels? Um, and we also want to talk today about what really inspired my research in my doctoral program at Rutgers and my clinical nutrition doctorate is the challenge was how could we know if we were insulin resistant with a 95% plus accuracy with never doing a blood test? So I want to talk about that today because it really inspires everything that I do, every meal I make, how I designed my meal planning tool, the plate, um, the score, it really comes down to what I found that I began to specialize in was insulin resistance, which leads to metabolic syndrome and so many clinical risk factors that we deal with as we begin to age. And they're happening younger and younger as we look at high blood pressure, um, our waist circumference increasing in size, high cholesterol, high triglycerides, um, as we look at blood sugar levels, um, being high, inflammation, all of these things are clinical risk factors for our, you know, measuring our metabolic health. But what I find interesting is that we typically don't seek help if we don't have a pain point. And I find like high cholesterol, it doesn't hurt. So we tend to, oh, it's kind of annoying and we have to take a medication for it maybe as we hit our mid forties, mid fifties. Um, some people are highly concerned about it, but a lot of people just take their medication and put it, chalk it down for I'm getting old. Um, 
We look at cholesterol and triglycerides. Some people are very concerned and alarmed, but most people take their medication and again, just chalk it up to this is what is normal aging. So if there isn't a pain point, many people don't seek, let's say, preventive care during these times. But when there's a heart attack, we tend to find people are willing to do almost anything that we say, like, oh, wow, what, what do I need to eat? What do I need to do? If there's a cancer diagnosis, we're all ears and we're ready to make these changes very quickly in our diet, in our lifestyle. But when we're talking about something that doesn't have a pain point, we typically don't seek care. And that affects a lot of people like myself who are in the preventive side of disease management in the treatment, and even how can we have remission of disease. So these are things that we talk about. But one thing that does bring people earlier on or younger is they want to lose weight. So one of the reasons I have focused on metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, is because one of the markers of insulin resistance, well, the key one, and in the research that I've done, if I were to identify one of the most important risk factors for your metabolic health that you can measure yourself at home today is your waist circumference, right at the belly button. What is your waist circumference? And has it changed since you were 18 years of age? Most people are going to say that that waist circumference has slowly increased in size. And some people not, but it depends on your lifestyle. It depends on the genetics. But if we can look at a waist circumference of less than 35 inches for women and under 40 or under 40 inches or under or less for men, those are the cut points that we find that really can determine our metabolic health. And as we look at metabolic health, we can look at body weight, we can look at body mass index, but waist circumference really is what I consider the easy, simple way to look at do or are we dealing with insulin resistance? So we're going to talk about that um, in this podcast. But I first want to talk about a little bit about what is insulin resistance? Why does it happen? And in a short summary of it, of it, insulin is an anabolic hormone that is really important for our metabolic health. And we think of it as a way to help our bodies have energy. So if our body gets insulin resistant, it means that with insulin being the key transport of getting glucose into the cell, which means fueling the cell, if we're having insulin resistance, we begin to see that the insulin, we need more and more insulin to get that sugar into the cell. When that happens, our cell is still, I call hungry, triggering to the brain, we need to eat, we need to keep eating. And yet we may have just eaten and yet that food isn't getting from the bloodstream into the cell. So one part is eating, then we have digestion, and what's our gut health like? And the next is getting that blood sugar into the bloodstream and then moving it into the cell. When that machine of our body is efficiently working, we have really good metabolic health, and that really supports prevention of diseases that we may be lined up for. So I'm always looking at not just what our meal was, but what's the effect and does it really fuel our body? And part of that is we hear a lot of things about blood sugar and we don't want to spike blood sugar after meals. 
um, we see a lot of the continuous glucose monitoring where it's like, oh, that apple spiked my blood sugar. So I shouldn't eat apples or I shouldn't eat fruit. I get comments on uh, posting a social where it's, um, how do I boost antioxidants so that I can fight cancer and inflammation and decrease the free radicals um, in my body? And I post an orange and I get that has too much sugar. So when I think about a whole orange or an apple, yes, individually, if we were to just eat those every 30 minutes throughout the day, we would need insulin. And yes, there would be a spike of insulin to eat any meal or eat anything. But it's important to look at what are the food combinations? And what are we eating at our meal time? So we're going to talk about how can we decrease our post-meal blood glucose response, not need the surge of insulin, so that we can get that fuel into the cell super efficient with the least amount of insulin. And a lot of that has to do with what the meal's made up of, and it also is made up of what our activity is after the meal, how sedentary we are or how much we move. And also, it also can include how much stress we're in because our stress hormones can impact our insulin resistance as well. So basically what we're saying is when we eat a meal, our digestive tract breaks down the carbs, even protein and fat, we'll, we can produce glucose from anything that we eat. But the most efficient is when we're moving it from carbohydrate, breaking it down into the individual glucose molecules. And this is the primary energy for our body. And insulin is made and secreted by the pancreas. It helps shuttle glucose from the blood into the cell for energy. Um, but large blood sugar spikes from highly refined carbohydrate foods at meals, snacks. Um, when we think of sugary beverages, we've talked about energy drinks and how much sugar we're drinking in some of our previous podcasts. Um, all of these things, as well as low fiber in a meal, can cause a high blood sugar spike after a meal. And this repeated pattern can cause insulin surges. And when our body is continuing to have an insulin surge, there's this level where we just kind of call it our cells become a little bit numb to the insulin. So we begin to need more and more as we age insulin to get the same amount of sugar into the cell. That's just sort of a simple way of really defining the process of insulin resistance. And so when we think about... Um, I've always, in my research, found over 60% of people over the age of 50 are insulin resistant or beginning to be insulin resistant with higher fasting insulin levels. And again, we can measure the waist circumference. So if we see a waist circumference for men 40 inches or above, for women 35 inches or above, let's start looking at insulin and let's start looking at our blood sugar levels and we can use diet and lifestyle to make these changes. So they're super important uh, processes for us to be aware of and something that we know we can do something about. Um, I think it's also important for us to know that insulin, being an anabolic hormone, it does trigger fullness. And so it is a hormone that tells us you're full. So it has really good, we need insulin to be healthy. And we just want our body to stay insulin sensitive. So the more we are insulin sensitive, the healthier we are metabolically. And we also need glucose or insulin to determine what we do with the glucose because it's responsible for managing our blood glucose levels. So if our glucose levels are 
rising high glucose over time or a very short time can kill us. So our insulin's job is to make sure that we don't get high insulin levels in our bloodstream. And if we eat more food than what we need, we have more energy than what we need. It's the insulin that says, let's store some of this insulin is glycogen in the muscle. So you can have that glycogen storage for your exercise tomorrow and the next day. But we can also see that the body or the insulin will store the excess fuel that we have eaten and that energy as body fat. And so that's sort of the process of what insulin does. And what our goal is to look at how can we stay insulin sensitive? How can we measure our insulin sensitivity? And that is, let's check that waist circumference. So I say if you, we have a waist circumference for sure, men and women over 40 inches, in my research, I found that they were the highest anabolic risk uh, population. And I had, didn't have to do any other blood work. But there was a 95 to 98% chance that when I did, in my research, measure the fasting insulin, it was high. So we were really looking at a very accurate way that doesn't cost any money to be able to target insulin resistance in a population. So I've always said if I was an insurance company or if I was paying for your medical bills or I was responsible, um, the, the population that I would put my most money in supporting um, prevention as I would be before someone has diabetes, before someone has prediabetes, we can start looking at waist circumference as a marker earlier on before we begin to start having other clinical risk factors and really help people live better, live healthy longer. And that's really um, what my goal is. Now, when we look at some of the, what I talked about, the metabolic or the metformin that is used to improve our metabolic health, or let's say to manage blood sugar levels. Um, I saw this study and it was like 2000, in 2004 showing that 42 million people were prescribed metformin in the United States. And that to, today there's about 92 million um, that are prescribed metformin. And metformin does help manage blood sugar in many people. And there's a lot of people that think it's a very safe prescription. I'm not really debating that today. I just want to point out that it doesn't treat the root cause of diabetes or treat the insulin resistance, which is the root cause of why we're not managing our blood sugar in our own body as long as we don't have type 1 diabetes, which is another metabolic uh, health problem that isn't part of what we're talking about today. So when we start looking at metformin, how can I take less of it or how could I replace it? How can I look at the root cause of it? Um, let's start looking at how we can drop waist circumference because that's the way we can improve insulin resistance. So I just want to outline today real simply, and you'll see me talking about it now as we go in this podcast, that I'll be talking about toxic waste. And that is our waist size. Um, and I want us to think about that the average dress or clothing size for women is about a size 14. And that's beginning to put women in a waist circumference of 36 inches or above. So we could look at a clothing size of 14, as well as a waist circumference of 35 or above. These cut points are something that we want to start looking at. Um, how can we lower our risk and live healthy longer, which is ultimately our goal. 
I also want to point out that hemoglobin A1C is many times measured in a health assessment. And we do like to see that below 5.6%. Um, we see that begin to creep up many times as people are getting older, but we're seeing it creep up younger and younger. And again, this is an indication of the last 12 weeks of our blood sugar levels. So we're going to be talking about what can we do in our diet and lifestyle so that we can slow and reduce the post-meal blood sugar surge. And my goal is with my plate that I do is that my post-meal blood sugar surge and how a meal becomes approved by me, I call it the Dr. Cheryl plate. And how do I, when we FDA test a medication, I look at testing a meal. I tested my recipes on over 2,000 people to look at post-meal glucose response from the entire meal. Not one item, not just a single food, but the combination of that, that, that glycemic load, and how did that impact our blood sugar surge, and what can we do about it? And I had really great results with it. And so talking a little bit about what those meals are, the number one thing that we can look at is how much fiber is in the meal. Fiber acts like a filter. It slows the absorption of glucose. So a lot of times I'll talk about like, if you're dealing with insulin resistance, you can even an hour or 30 minutes before a meal or start your meal as an appetizer with a cup of non-starchy vegetables like celery and cucumber and red peppers. And just um, sometimes I've even said, start with an apple, but ultimately something that has a lot of soluble fiber so that you can begin to be putting fiber into your stomach, which is ultimately this natural filter that slows and reduces post-meal blood sugar spike. Also, when we eat meals that are predominantly whole plant food, I am very much for a whole plant focused meals. It doesn't mean you have to be a vegan, you don't have to be a vegetarian, but fiber is only found in plant foods. So that's why I always say that if we're looking at unprocessed whole plant foods, it's just a natural filter to help support not having insulin resistance through the life cycle. And also the, of course, the primary is improving gut health, inflammation, free radicals, antioxidants, um, you know, fighting free radicals, um, so many other benefits. But right now we're focusing on the way that fiber actually filters. And um, I often say, if you just think of it, it forms a gel-like substance that really binds to the sugar in the stomach and slows the uptake into the bloodstream. And this allows us to just reduce those surges. So that's one way that we can really make a meal that one meal at a time, we begin to improve insulin resistance by managing blood sugar surges. A second that we see that's very interesting is saturated fat, a diet with high saturated fat. There are some studies that will show that insulin resistance can actually, or insulin sensitivity actually begins to decrease, meaning we're moving the wrong direction, by a diet that's high in especially animal saturated fats. So butter, bacon, cream. So that's something that's kind of interesting because we're always thinking about refined carbohydrates, that that's going to be the culprit. Um, but as we look at refined carbohydrates, ultimately, those are going to be the number one problem for surging blood sugar. These beverages that are filled with a lot of sugar, it's amazing. Every time you see five, well, I'm kind of looking at the numbers. If you're looking at what's a teaspoon, 
of sugar. If you're looking at a drink, if I see five milligrams of added sugar, that's a teaspoon of sugar. So when we look at something that's got 20 milligrams of added sugar or refined sugars in, let's say a beverage, it's like pouring four teaspoons of sugar into that meal. Those are the things that are really going to be surging blood sugar and also high fructose corn syrup, which we find in the modern day soda that um, really can make us eat a lot more of the refined sugars than and, and not feel full. We'll talk about that more in another podcast. Another thing that we work on is walking after a meal. And I call that oxygen cocktail in our Take 10 program. So we take uh, ideally a walk outside. It's 10 minutes minimum after a meal. It's not a zone two. It's not aerobic exercise. This is a very relaxing 10-minute walk. And it really makes a difference. I have measured this with people with the most sensitive uh, blood sugar levels. And they will drop 20 points minimum on their blood sugar just adding a 10-minute oxygen cocktail walk after a meal. So it really works like a medicine is to have a walk after each meal. So if someone is insulin resistant, you're wanting to decrease your waist circumference, add a 10-minute oxygen cocktail after a meal because movement just really makes a difference in decreasing that glucose spike that we get after a meal and improving insulin sensitivity. Our other is alcohol. When alcohol, when we drink alcohol with a meal, alcohol has to be broken down first by the liver and the glucose and the fat is waiting, has more of a backup to be able to store the fat or um, store the glucose um, into fat or to turn it into glycogen to store for future fuel for, for exercise. And so we see a connection between alcohol intake and insulin resistance. We'll talk more about that, but it also can add to waist circumference. So we begin to see that pattern. Um, and we have recommendations for no more than one drink um, per day or five per week. Um, but ideally, we don't need any alcohol to be healthy. So that would be your ideal is no alcohol intake if you're really trying to go all the way with improving insulin resistance. And another is practicing something that works for you. Um, in some mindfulness manner like meditation, deep breathing, so that you can work on stress management because stress management can increase our cortisol levels. And this is another way that we can see blood sugar going up and causing over time um, insulin resistance. So these are just some of the things that we can just highlight of simple diet and health habit things that we can do. We're talking about fiber, watching those refined carbs that we eat at each meal, not the whole carbs. If they're filled with fiber, we can eat those types of carbs. So more whole plant foods, more whole plant focused meals. It doesn't mean that you don't have to eat any of the other foods. It just means those are the foods that will filter and slow that response. That oxygen cocktail, that 10 minute oxygen cocktail is really powerful that I saw in our program when I'm actually measuring before and after the results of these things that I'm telling you. I've tested them and I've seen them on over 2,000 people. So I feel really uh, confident that these things work. And I also see that during our program, we did not serve alcohol during the program. We had a great exercise program and we really focused on mindfulness and stress reduction. So those things are all important when we look at a healthy lifestyle. 
But what I want to share that's really exciting when we talk about the proof is that in just 10 days, we saw an average of men and women of one inch drop in waist circumference size um, across the population with a 30% reduction in insulin or fasting insulin levels with people that had elevated fasting level or insulin, fasting insulin levels and decreasing the need for medication. So this is really powerful. We're talking about in just 10 days of eating more plant forward meals, moving after every single meal, every single meal, three times a day, we had a group oxygen cocktail so that everybody went out. We don't always feel like it, but boy, it really makes a difference. So that gives you 10 minutes, three times a day. You've got 30 minutes of walking already just from your oxygen cocktail. In your evening oxygen cocktail, we just turned it into a 30-minute walk for our whole group, and it was really powerful. So think about some of these simple things that you can do, and you're going to hear me in our social posts and in future podcasts just talk about what can we do to fight disease feel great, fuel our body, and drop that toxic waste. Because those are the people I'm most concerned about. If I was, when I talk about moving into a niche, I think about diabetes. I think about prediabetes. I'm worried earlier. And yet most people don't have a pain point there. But a lot of people don't like their waist circumference increasing. So I have chosen waist circumference. I call it toxic waste. What your waist size is, is something that most of us consider a pain point and we're very motivated to drop that. So if your reason is I want to look different or I liked the way I looked better, I don't want us to focus on body image and I don't want to get into the extremes of the low, but I do want to alert us that when we look at BMI, we just saw, I just saw a post with Peter Atia talking about this this week, Dr. Peter Atia, that only 20% of people, 20% of people that are obese are actually still metabolically healthy. Um, it's where the body, the shape of the body. So waist circumference, again, insulin resistance is really a better marker than potentially body weight. And that's all being studied all the time, but I'm hanging my hat on insulin resistant, insulin resistance and waist size as our first markers that give us really what we consider a pain point, but some of our first signs for prevention and treatment. And even as we drop waist circumference, we're going to see the correlation of our, of our metabolic health improve. All will happen together. And when we look, if you're a Dr. Cheryl Plus member, you will see, we'll talk about this all the time, but in our daily health score, higher scores, it's a 20 point score, 10 foods, 10 health habits. And in that score, the higher numbers, 18 plus out of 20 is my goal, correlate to dropping waist circumference and improving fasting and insulin. So that's really my prescription. It's my dose. And I'm just giving you a little summary of it here. So let's all look at measuring our waist size. Let's don't obsess about it, but let's start focusing on insulin resistance and watch your waist size drop as you just do a few simple things that can, that can start improving the way your body metabolizes glucose and improving your insulin sensitivity. So we'll talk more about it next time. I look forward to seeing you again. And if you want a deeper dive on any of these topics, I'd love to see you in the Dr. Cheryl Plus membership. Have a great day.